Hey, deserving listeners, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. In this episode, it's going to be me and Bob talking about depression. We're responding to some patron emails about depression and about therapy and about CBT and ACT and other kinds of things. We also go into some personal things as well. So if you want to hear this full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of our podcast and you'll get to hear this full episode. Thanks a lot. So, Bob, we're still stuck in our offices, uh, separated from each other, unable to, to hug it out as we normally do. Uh, the mm-hmm. dog is unable to sniff your crotch. But the podcast must go on. So here we are over Zoom recording. Let's answer some patron emails and questions that are specifically for you. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I am your friend, Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle and went to graduate school with you a long time ago. Uh, this first uh, email is from Upper Tier Patron Anonymous. He says, a few years ago, I, so this is kind of a long one, Bob, okay. but I think it's important and it's about CBT and intractable depression. Uh-huh. A few years ago, I saw a therapist for the first time for my longstanding depression and social anxiety. I stopped seeing him after several sessions and haven't been back to therapy since. Throughout therapy and in the years since, I feel like I hadn't changed at all and that there have definitely been times when my depression was and currently is worse than it's ever been. I've recently been through intense bouts of suicidal ideation. That along with concerns expressed by my family has pushed me to want to seek help again. However, my experience with my old therapist and numerous other factors has made me overwhelmingly confused and hesitant to reach out to someone. For context, I was a psychology major in college, so I'm pretty familiar with most of the therapies that are out there and mental health field in general. So you're already shaking your head, Bob. Why? Because cognitive knowledge of such things um, is really different from personal knowledge. Yeah. Right. And he provides in the email a little bit more background in terms of why he thinks he understands the models. And I think he does a little bit and he listens to the podcast, but for sure uh, that doesn't mean that he would understand. And most people wouldn't Uh, consumers, most or the vast majority of clients barely understand even some of the models. He has a little bit of knowledge, but anyway, going on with his email here. Mm hmm. My previous therapist had an approach that was CBT and acceptance and commitment-based, or ACT. So I knew going into therapy that CBT and ACT are widely considered the most effective therapeutic approaches with the greatest evidence backing, especially for problems like I was and am having. Uh, Just chiming in there, yeah, I mean, if you're going to talk to a group of therapists and you said, what's the evidence-based, most effective pra- practice for depression and, and social anxiety, CBT is definitely going to be um, a dominant response there, um, if not the only response from people. Having said that, and we'll go into this later, it's complicated and um, it, this, such a simplistic answer to such a complex question um, is what it is. During and after therapy, I was extremely discouraged that I didn't seem to be getting any better. I was and still am left with so many questions and doubts 
that have made it difficult to commit to another round of therapy. Was I the reason that therapy failed? Did I just have a bad therapist? Or was it due to some other ineffable reason like incompatibility? The therapy basically consisted of my therapist giving me workbooks with assigned readings and exercises to do between sessions. At each session, he would ask how things went with the homework and if I had any questions. I got the sense that he didn't want sessions to deviate from the structure and it never felt like I had room to really vent to him. If I started to vent, he would often interrupt me and if I asked him a question, he would go into long lectures and or anecdotes related to whatever I had mentioned, but never reflecting or trying to gain any better understanding of what I had said. Many of the lectures and anecdotes almost seemed pre-prepared, like he had used them for many other of his clients previously with depression and social anxiety. Um, so just chiming in here, yeah, there's a way of implementing CBT and ACT that is very workbook oriented and very uh, uh, much, you know, the way you describe it, a patron, is actually the way it's manualized. As the client talks about their uh, history or they get away from what was, is considered to be a, a good use of your time in CBT and ACT, then the therapist is act absolutely instructed and to follow the model, uh, you know, with fidelity, they're instructed to hear, you know, you don't want to stomp all over people, but they also will uh, try to redirect back to the workbook and back to the model. So, um, and that can feel bad at times. Now, the wisdom behind that is that uh, to deviate from the evidence-based model is to deviate from uh, what's going to be helpful. It'd be similar to if a, you went to see a physician for, say, diabetes, and the physician was asking all these questions that was supposed to assess and treat diabetes, and you started talking about a vacation you went on to Mexico, and they didn't seem to be relevant at all to the diabetes assessment or treatment. The physician is going to be sitting there thinking, okay, I'm wasting both of our time by entertaining this, this jaunt, so I, I, let's get back to uh, the assessment and treatment um, at hand. Um, obviously more comp and we'll get into, you know, more details on that later, but anyway, any thoughts on that, Bob? Uh, it's a rookie mistake to think that if the, there's a deviation onto my vacation in Mexico that I'm not engaging in therapy. And, and I know your example isn't meant to be glib because my guess is that, uh, this person, when they quote unquote deviated from the therapist model, wasn't talking about things that were unimportant to him. Um, I think that when, rather than confront and correct uh, those kinds of junctures, it probably makes sense for a good savvy therapist, whether they're CBT or ACT or any other kind of therapy based, to be curious and interested in what has pulled us down this road, because there's probably something very important. I don't blame this guy for being frustrated with ther therapy, if, based on what he's described, because it's very clear to me, I'm, I was, I'm taking a couple of notes while I listened, that he wants to be heard and that he wants to have contact. And uh, the workbook feels alienating to him. The manual feels alienating to him. And so um, I think even a good CBT therapist isn't going to be rigid. Um, they're going to have their eye on their model, but 
a good CBT therapist, a good therapist is going to be attuned to and pay attention to what is my client telling me now? And this person's experience is that they're not interested in that. I would get up and leave too. Yeah. He goes on to say, he talked for more than I did during all of the sessions. There was rarely a give and take as I had expected there to be in therapy. He never really seemed to be interested in any of the thoughts or feelings I was having, which is ironic because one of the workbooks he gave me was called Thoughts and Feelings. <laughs> I think I have that book. Actually. Uh, between these sessions, I didn't really feel motivated to engage with any of the exercises that were given to me as homework outside of the occasional meditation or thought journal. We ended things on a lukewarm note in which one of our sessions sort of stalled out and he seemed to shift from his usual question and lecture approach to asking me about my family history. Mm. This felt like an unnatural shift for him, and I felt like I had almost pushed him to it. I left the last session feeling like a failure and didn't call back to schedule another session. Afterwards, I wondered if therapy failed because I was lazy. I also wondered if I was wrong to want to vent and go deeper with him instead of focusing on homework skill building and intercession exercises. These doubts were compounded when I saw a career coach a few years later. While I obviously wasn't seeing her for the same issues as I saw my previous therapist, she assigned homework and exercises that were very similar to some of the CBT ones that I encountered in therapy, and I was similarly unmotivated to complete them. Unlike my former therapist, she had somewhat warmer personality, but I still didn't quite connect with her, and our sessions also felt like they were following a pre-prepared one-size-fits-all script. I came out of career coaching with no clearer sense of direction than when I went in, and again felt as though it was my fault. I also know some clinical psychology PhD students who are training in CBT and ACT. They don't know I struggle with depression and social anxiety, and they didn't know I've been to therapy for that. In my casual conversations with them, I got the sense that my experience with CBT and ACT is how those therapies are normally delivered. One of them even mentioned offhand about our clients, quote, I'm so bored with seeing clients who have social anxiety and a little bit of depression, like just read the workbook, unquote. I'm afraid that if I go back to therapy, I will encounter the same things and I feel even more hopeless than I do now. With so little being asked of me, was it my fault that the therapy failed? Am I making any unfair assumptions about uh, therapy based on, am I making any unfair assumptions about therapy based on these experiences? Am I wrong to want to want therapy to be something that it is not? Bob, what do you think? Um, one of the things that comes, two thoughts. One of the things that comes clear is this person wants someone to relate to him, wants to have contact, somebody to actually talk with him candidly and directly about what's happening in his experience of being alive. Um, it's a little discouraging to hear about the PhD students who are bored with their clients, but I got to tell you, if I was stuck in some kind of rigid, manualized treatment, um, I'd be bored too. But I don't think that's what good CBT or any of the kind of manualized treatment really is. And it reminds me of a client I worked with many, many, many years ago who came to me because they had trouble with uh, GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. 
And so I, at the time, was training in CBT models and had a GAD manualized treatment that I actually got from a professor of mine from when I was an undergrad at Penn State and a guy that's really world famous in treatment of GAD. And uh, so I was following this manualized treatment and we got through the quote unquote agenda for the particular session we were in and we had an extra 10 minutes and I looked at her and I said, are you happy? And she started to cry. And that was the beginning of a really interesting and warm and non-manualized but person-centered uh, Irvin Yalom humanistic treatment relationship that I'll never forget, that I cherish, that I uh, really value, um, person I really came to appreciate and care about quite deeply. And I think our work together was very, very helpful to her, but it had nothing to do. We, we didn't do GAD manualized treatment after that session. We started paying attention to her. Would you today, if you had a generalized anxiety client, uh, use that uh, manualized or anything close to that? I don't think so. No, I don't think I would. That's not been my experience of what's helpful to me personally. And so I tend to model what I do in my sessions uh, based on what my experiences of therapy are, my own as a client. So no. But the criticism, not from me, but from some would be, you're not following evidence space. And you, 10 yeah. years ago, were like Mr. Evidence Space. So nah, what easy, easy, easy. You, you <laughs> may be overgeneralizing here. I, I went, Kirk invited me to teach a, uh, to uh, give a talk about um, OCD in a class that he was teaching a long, long time ago. And I showed up and I said to the class, there's so much evidence for this approach to OCD treatment that it is just about unethical to do anything else. And that might've gotten overblown into thinking that you must do evidence-based practice. And of course I worked in a DBT clinic for a long, long time and actually the mothership of DBT clinics. And so very, very evidence-based oriented uh, therapy. But I got to tell you, I heard Marsha Linehan say uh, toward the end of my time there working with her, you know, the, the real cure is love. Yeah which is not a very evidence-based statement. Uh, you know, having said that, it's extremely evidence-based. There's a shit ton of evidence that humanistic and relational-oriented therapies work, which I'll get into in a second. And that's what's just so fucking bizarre about this. It's like mm-hmm. we privilege this notion, even though the evidence, and I'll get into it more later, but essentially it's like we're all looking at the same data and as a society or as a field or something, we tend to privilege what looks more scientific and we tend to deprivilege, underprivilege things that look unscientific, even though the, the things that look unscientific actually are scientifically proven to be extremely, if not way more uh, uh, a factor in positive outcomes in therapy. But anyway, so I took some notes on it because you ask a lot of questions, anonymous patron. Yeah. Um, there's there's lots question. to say. Um, Depression is rough, and I've treated a lot of people over the years with depression, and it is rough. You didn't go into detail about how rough it is for you, but um, given that you've been trying to help yourself with that for a long time, I'm guessing that it's been, it's been really rough, um, and it's really common. There's a lifetime prevalence of something like 15 16%. It's extremely common to have, and usually when people do have a bout of depression, it's, it can last a long time. 
I will say for you and anyone else that is thinking about suicide to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255 or just Google it. And those people anonymously or non-anonymously can, can talk with you. So it's important to do that. Also, make sure you talk with a therapist about suicide prevention. It's, it's very important because so many people think about suicide, attempt suicide, sometimes complete suicide. But, from, but the vast, vast majority, if not all the people, when we can get them through those spikes of intention, they are happy that they got through uh, those moments alive. So um, it's all about connection. It's all about, uh, you know, being with people. It's all about having options. It's all about, um, you know, having that support and, and, and having, you know, so, so do what you can. Now, let's talk about the efficacy of CBT because it's actually pretty complicated. People will say uh, that CBT is evidence-based therapy. Okay, well, what the fuck do we mean by that? And I've gone off on these rants before, but and Bob mentioned it a little bit, which is that it has to be manualized. In order for a therapy to be evaluated properly, we have to lock down exactly what we mean by therapy, and then we have to make the therapist follow the protocol word for word almost. Otherwise, we don't know if we're comparing apples and oranges or if we're comparing apples and cows or something. Because like to study... Uh, the way that I do therapy or the way that Bob does therapy, how are we going to figure out what elements of, of what we, you know, let's say our clients walk away from our, ourselves, Bob and me saying, wow, that worked. Okay. How do we teach that to other people? What elements do we teach? Well, we have to figure out what is it about what we're doing that is working. How do we do that? Working. Yeah. Is it, is it the couch? Is it our facial expression? Is it the way we think? Is it the vibe we come across as? Is it the, the, you know, the way we greet someone when they walk in? You even have to define what working means. Right. You know, is it just self-report? Like when someone says, yes, that worked. Or, or is it symptom reduction? But again, how do we know symptoms have been, been reduced? Often self-report. So uh, now... In order to actually scientifically study this, which I absolutely appreciate, then they have, to, they have to narrow it down. And they also have to narrow down the clients. Because what if a client comes in, they suffer from depression, anxiety, borderline, grief, uh, uh, you know, heart disease, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and you're trying to cure the depression. Well, if, uh, what if all those other confounding variables affect the problem, you know, someone comes into a medical office and they have, they have three different kinds of cancers and you're trying to, you're trying to figure out if this one treatment, uh, you know, cures that one cancer. Well, without going into the details, um, it's, 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 you want to reduce the, conf, the confounding variables essentially. And so you're trying to find clients that only have depression and nothing else which is a very rare individual, but that's how science works. You're trying to eliminate the, the variables because otherwise we, we don't know anything. Um, if you're trying to, this is a better analogy. If you're trying to measure the hardness of steel or of iron, you don't want impure iron that has a bunch of granite in it. You have to get rid of the granite 
to study how hard iron is. So in the same way, if you're trying to treat depression with a particular model of therapy, you want the depression to be clean without a lot of confounds and you want the treatment to be clean without a lot of complications to it. The other thing is, is you have to have, the treatment has to be short term. It doesn't have to be, but it, the research lends itself to that because it's so fucking expensive to do these trials. It's, it's thousands, millions of dollars that often is just donated by a university or a hospital or, you know, the, the government rarely spends money on this kind of thing. So th these are foundations or these are people trying to prove something or, you know, so someone's got to pay that money. And so you got to have it time limited. 10 weeks is, that's a very expensive trial. Uh, but, and so that's another factor. So CBT lends itself to that because it's very, it's, it lends itself to manualization. It lends itself to short term. It lends itself to identifying one issue and, and addressing that. And so, um, and thus people will say it's, it's evidence-based, but what that doesn't include is all the other kinds of therapy again, which I'll get into in a second. Now, when we actually look at a large scale meta analyses of the, um, you know, using CBT for depression. So I actually looked up a fair amount of, I, I'm familiar with this research, but I re-familiarized myself with it. So it was a meta-analysis of the meta-analysis. So it's like a, a, an overview of all of the overviews because there's a lot of research on CBT for depression. And the conclusion is mixed results. Some meta-analyses, some studies show pretty good evidence that CBT does work with depression for a percentage of people. And other studies show that CBT is basically no different from other forms of therapy. So this says a number of things that when we say it's evidence-based, well, we're saying it's, it's more likely than, it's probably more likely than other forms of therapy. Well, no. So <laughs> it's probably uh, going to, well, there's a good chance that it will work for depression if it's done right. But there's a reason to think it will work. There's a reason to think it's going to work. Uh, it might work is probably the, the way to put it. There's reason to believe that it might work. There's evidence showing that it might work. There's a lot of evidence showing it won't work. And you don't hear people saying that, right? You don't, people, you don't hear people saying, uh, there's reason to believe that CBT won't work with depression. <laughs> <laughs> because there's, in some ways, just as much evidence that it won't work because even the studies that show efficacy, there's a, a big percentage of the people that go through the treatment that either show no improvement or even get worse. So it, 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 we just have to realize that, that it's not a black or white thing. CBT works for depression. Psychoanalysis doesn't work for depression. Um, so can CBT and ACT work for uh, depression? Absolutely. I mean, can the manualized... So the other thing that Bob was getting to earlier is that CBT and ACT, is a, it's a broad model. And sometimes it is... Uh, it is reduced to this very formal way of doing it the way that you anonymous patron have experienced. But I use cognitive therapy almost every session. I use behavioral therapy almost every session. It, you know, when a client comes to me and they're like, Oh yeah, I mean, I'm going through a divorce right now. And I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like my ex-wife is, 
you know, she's pushing me away and I feel like she's, she's just deciding that, um, she's just writing me off and she's trying to get rid of me. She doesn't want me to see the kids. And, you know, he has this narrative about what that is. And I believe some, you know, in that situation, maybe it would be helpful if I, if we talked about those cognitions, those beliefs. Okay. Let's look at that. What do you, well, one way of looking at it is she's trying to get rid of you. Another way of looking at it is she's really hurt by the fact that you broke up with her. And when she sees you, she feels that pain and then she gets angry and she doesn't know what to do. And so she uh, ends up expressing that anger and she's hoping that you'll hear her and that you'll apologize or something or that you'll come back to her or something. And that's a cognitive, you could argue that's a cognitive technique. I just did cognitive therapy and I do that all the time. Um, and cognitive therapy works. It absolutely works. Um, and the, I've never done the manual. I've never done the workbook uh, version of it to my knowledge. Um, but, you know, that can, that can work too. Now, can CBT not work? Absolutely. It, it can not work at times. All studies show that there's a degree um, or percentage of subjects who do not respond to the therapy or do not respond um, optimally. Right, exactly. Uh, I don't like the way I said it because it almost sounds like it's the research subjects' fault that they didn't get better. Therapy does not work for everybody. And are we going to get to the fact that he's blaming himself? Is it my fault? Are we going to get to that? Yeah, we'll get to that. Sorry. Okay, good. And there's a lot of roads to being depressed. One of the roads is automatic thoughts being, uh, you know, the problems, shall we say. And some, some of the times that has nothing to do with it. So uh, you could be in a bad situation. <laughs> um, you could be, you could have gone through trauma or something. Anyway. So, so can CBT be implemented badly? Absolutely. So Bob was talking about this earlier. He, he, he's looking at this and like, okay, yeah, CBT fine. But it sounds like this was completely imp implemented badly. And the PhD students you're talking to are learning it from people who are either uninspiring or are also just bad at teaching how to be a good CBT therapist. I know CBT therapists, cognitive therapists who absolutely understand the meaning of the relationship and really focus on that. Um, I know, I know cognitive therapists that don't. So the, the key here is that, which I was talking about earlier is that when they study the variance in outcomes in therapy, that the vast majority of, of what we have control over. So we have control over, shall we say two different things. We have control over the relationship that we have with the client, which is arguably psychodynamic, interpersonal, humanistic therapy. And we also have control over the model that we use. So, you know, all therapists involve some kind of, how you doing? You know, like some kind of, it's that we, we're, we, we're not robots, right? We, we try to, you know, have some kind of back and forth. Even a, a dentist will try to have some kind of back and forth with their patients, right? So, so we have that. Um, and then we have a model, which is CBT or interpersonal or humanistic or systems or something, gestalt. Well, when we compare those things, the relationship is something like three to four times more affecting on positive outcomes than the model you use. So if you focused on anything, you should be focusing on the relationship rather than the particular model. So when people say, 
oh, you're depressed. Well, obviously we need to be CBT. Well, if you really want to help someone who's depressed based on evidence, then the relationship is the most important thing to be focusing on. Now, maybe CBT is a good thing to add on to that. And again, I would argue that the relationship is the humanistic aspect. You're basically, basically the, the research that demonstrates the relationship is very, very important to the outcomes of therapy. They're basically supporting interpersonal and humanistic therapy. Do you agree with that, Bob? Yeah, I, I completely agree with it. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't read any research to reach that conclusion. That's just based on my own experience. There's not a good relationship. It's just flat. Yeah. And what do we mean by relationship? Well, the research has looked into it quite extensively over, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And here are, and this is just a smattering of the research areas because some people are like, oh, relationship, oh, love, that's not very scientific. No, no, no. This is, uh, there's a shit ton of, of science and, you know, empirical research on this. And it's actually not hard to look into. Here are the elements. Empathy. Having empathy and conveying empathy that you understand what the other person is going through emotionally. Anonymous patron, you did not get that from this client. And therefore, your therapist was not evidence-based. Positive regard. This is not just some, you know, be nice to your clients. No, you actually, in your heart, have positive thoughts about your client and you convey that. Now, it doesn't mean that you approve of everything. Oh, you're having an affair. What a wonderful person you are. Oh, you embezzled from work. What a wonderful person you are. No, you, you, have a, you give them the benefit of the doubt on the reasons why they did things or, or you care about them. You know, it's just like you have a, a positive vibe towards that human being. Uh, so that is something that they've studied that has been found evidence-based to improve outcomes, including depression. It, your therapist did not convey that effectively to you. They were not being evidence-based. Attachment, having a good attachment, attunement, safety, feeling like you're actually in a relationship with your therapist. That's evidence-based. Your, your therapist did not do that. Rupture repair is a very important thing. Bob talks about this often. It's not about uh, having a rupture. It's about the repair. And what a wonderful opportunity for a massive therapeutic moment and a very real moment to have. And they've studied this, that when therapists are good at rupture repair, better outcomes. Your therapist had a rupture with you. Uh, you mentioned a couple. You know, One, you were trying to talk about, you're trying to vent, and then your therapist stomped on you. That was a rupture. Your therapist either didn't notice didn't care or was taught not to care or something. That is not evidence-based. That is going against the evidence. Countertransference management, managing your own countertransference. Um, What's countertransference? The feelings we have that might interfere with the treatment of a client or just general feelings. Um, you mean feelings that a therapist might have? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay. The alliance. Uh, which is similar to attachment, but a very specific part of the working or therapeutic alliance. Uh, there are three elements. You have goals, task, and bond. So you have to, so bond is similar to attachment, but goals and tasks. So you have to agree. You have to have an alliance between therapist and client. You have to agree on the goals and agree on the tasks to meet those goals. 
And I know that sounds kind of robotic, but it's not. So you did not, uh, anonymous patron, have an alliance with this, this therapist. That you two did not agree on the task to, you, you probably agreed on the goal, reduce your depressive symptoms. You did not agree on the tasks. Your therapist said, I'm going to do this style of therapy. We're going to do workbooks. There's going to be homework. I'm not going to talk. I don't want to talk about your past. I don't want to hear about your feelings. You had a completely different idea of what was going to help you. You wanted to talk about your feelings. You wanted to talk about your past. You did not agree on the task to have a disagreement on the task and to move forward with therapy as a therapist is to go against evidence and is potentially unethical in, in some ways. Authenticity, self-disclosure, these are also evidence-based things. Uh, sounds like your therapist might have done a little bit of self-disclosure. Um, and relational interpretations, uh, which I won't go into because it's a little complicated. But anyway, so this is all evidence-based. Now, what does this sound like to me? Again, hu- just right down the middle, humanistic therapy, Carl Rogers, um, other people like that, uh, Virginia Satir, these kinds of people. I also hear a lot of interpersonal, you know, contemporary psychodynamic therapy is, is very much in this vein as well. And so to me, massive evidence for those models and really nothing to do with cognitive or behavioral therapy. Now, good cognitive behavioral therapy does involve empathy, yeah. does involve positive regard, does involve the alliance, does involve repair, attachment, authenticity, self-disclosure, counter-transference management. But because CBT people confuse their model for the golden egg, they uh, see everything else as a piece of shit. And it's just, and I think that's the sort of, uh, situ- the sort of echo chamber that your therapist and these PhD students might be in. And it's very unfortunate. It's, it's, it's just, it's very unfortunate, but you know, Bob, it sure makes you and me look like excellent therapists. Don't you think? I agree. Yeah. I imagine those PhD students want to do a good job by their clients. They're, they, they got there for a reason, but they're being taught to um, follow a rigid guideline. I think one of the things that CBT people aren't so good at in conveying what the model is, are these less quote unquote tangible bits of what is therapy, but a good CBT therapist, a good CBT therapist has all that shit that you just listed out. They are empathic and they do give a shit about the client and they are human, a real human in a real relationship. But I don't think any of the CBT models actually talk about that. I mean, like explicitly in this is how you do CBT. They don't talk about this is how you have a relationship with your client. These elements are important, guys. They're like, okay, so it's this exercise on this thought, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, behavior exposure and response prevention, blah, 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 which is all good. Yeah. But by itself, not enough. Yeah. There's a similar problem in solution-focused world uh, where it's another brief model where they, if you take it a little too far or a little yeah. simplistic, then you forget that the, the very, you know, foundation of our profession and our effectiveness is the relationship and that, and without it, you're, you're going to have clients that occasionally will lock in with your model and like it, but there's going to be so many clients that, that aren't going to like it. You're also going to get a lot of clients that will bow out of therapy saying, yeah, it worked, even though in their head, they're like, that didn't fucking work. You know, I don't, I don't even trust that therapist uh, with my 
truth. So Bob, was it his fault that therapy failed? Oh, hell no, no. Um, the first thought that went through my head um, as you were talking about that part was in DBT land, they talk about treatment being a failure. And whenever they talk about it, they say it's either one of two things. It's either the therapist failed or the therapy failed, meaning the therapist didn't apply the therapy properly or the state of the art right now in this therapy is that we can't reach everybody and we can't help everybody, that there actually are situations or factors that we don't know how to treat well, but it is never the fault of the client that therapy fails. And you can think about it this way. You have your appendix rupture and you go in for emergency surgery and you die on the table. Is that the fault of the patient? Because, you know, they had an artery that was in a place that the surgeon wasn't anticipating and the surgeon nicked the artery and they bled out, right? Is it the fault of the patient because their artery is where it is? Of course not. That's just crazy talk. Either the surgeon failed or we don't have, and, and it's true of any, any intervention that we have, medical, dental, psychological, or whatever, there are situations that we don't know how to help with, that we don't have, the state of the art doesn't have a 100% cure rate. And people do die on the table. In fact, they, they always tell you when you're going to have surgery, there's a one in a thousand chance that you're not going to wake up. Is it likely? No. Is it the fault of the person who's having the surgery? Fuck no. So therapists have a hard time with this. I remember being on a listserv, a DBT listserv, where this question came up and the vast majority of DBT therapists were saying in this particular situation that it's the patient's fault. And there was one guy who I actually, I used to work with him at the, in Marsha's clinic, who kept saying to them, guys, this is not a DBT principle. Clients cannot fail in therapy. Either therapists fail or therapy fails, and that's it. And the problem is one of attunement. If your therapy is failing, it's perhaps because you don't know how to tune into this client's particular thing. You don't know how to reach them where they are, which, you know, fine. I mean, it sucks. It's tragic. But... Um, it's not the patient's fault when they show up for treatment with the very thing that they show up for treatment for and they get blamed for um, treatment failing. That's just passing the buck, man. That's just misplaced guilt. Yeah, it's so upsetting that us therapists are so easily, we so easy, we're so, it's so easy for us to fall into that mindset of yeah. it's the client's fault. I mean, I get the impulse and I've certainly had it where- sure things aren't working. You're frustrated. You had, you had, you know, especially in group therapy, you had like 50 clients in one day and half of them aren't getting any better. And three of them are an absolute crisis and actually hate you as a, mm -hmm. as a therapist or whatever the situation is. And, and you come home from work and you're just like, God, oh, you know, it's, it's, this is, and you're, you're underpaid. You don't have anyone to talk to your, your boss doesn't appreciate you. Uh, you're just seeing your career out, you know, laid out before you. <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of our list, half of our, or some of our listeners are like, my God, um, this is depressing to think about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I get the um, impulse to just be like, you know, to get angry and to, to find someone to blame. It's just like, it, it can't be me, right? It's got to be them. Uh, that's why I'm beating my head up against the wall. 
It's yeah, just so easy. Egocentrism humans have, yada, yada. Yeah. And within systems theory, we have a system of therapists as they talk to each other where this notion gets supported and, and then propagates. It, right. a, very, a very similar thing happens um, at schools and where I, I saw this in my early career because I worked with a lot of families and, and schools. And what I found was that when teachers got together, they, they blamed the administration and or the teachers. When the school people got together, they blamed the parents. And I was in the middle. Uh, maybe everyone was blaming the therapist too. I don't know. But I was in the middle and I would hear these two sides and I knew that everyone was trying their best. I knew the teachers were trying. Could they do better? Sure. But I looked at their job and been, I was just like, my God, I would not want that job. That just, <laughs> that's very stressful. Yeah. And I looked at the parents and yeah, could they do better? Sure. But they're, they're trying their ass off, you know, and, and uh, you only have so much energy in a day. <laughs> and and maybe, you got, maybe you do burn out. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard. And, and I would see that, but if you're in an echo chamber of teachers or an echo chamber of parents, these certain self-serving ideas don't get any kind of pushback and you have a group of therapists that over time just become jaded and like the anonymous patron, you hear those PhD students going, they were talking about clients who weren't responding to their therapy and they were blaming them by saying, just follow the workbook. God damn it. And it's such a weird phenomenon or I don't know it. And I, and I saw it all the time. Uh, I would be in staff meetings with, with colleagues and I, I would, I frequently, I would have to decide, is this the day that I alienate all my coworkers by accusing them of being bad therapists in this moment? Because there's no way around that, right? Like how, how do you say, um, by the way, like your, your colleague that was, you know, over the DBT group people, how do you point that out without implying you all have lost your way <laughs> or you're all like, are you really therapists? I mean, it, it's just such a, I mean, I guess the nice thing to say is, okay, I get it. We're all frustrated. It's normal to want to get angry at someone, but you know, let's all, um, and I guess I like the way that he put it was like, let's go back to the dogma which is, I'm not, I'm not blaming you. It's just the dogma is, uh, you know, it's not the client's fault. Yeah. And honestly, I'll tell the truth. Nine times out of 10, I said nothing because I just didn't want to alienate everyone at work. I didn't want to be the bad guy. I didn't have any power. I didn't want to uh, have everyone hate me. I didn't want to get in an argument um, I wanted to go to the next staff meeting without having to worry about entering the room. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, Bob? I mean, have you ever been? Oh, in that hell yeah. There's, that's just natural group pressure and, um, it's tough. It's tough to be the squeaky wheel. Absolutely. So yeah. Is it important? Of course. Are we always going to do it? No, man. I mean, therapists are people too. So they succumb to the same kinds of prejudices and self-serving um, rationalizations as everybody else, but they also are subject to the same group norms. And it's sort of like, it is hard to speak up. I don't think that makes you a bad guy or a bad therapist or a bad colleague or a bad participant in your treatment team. That is a very hard spot to be in. And if I had to bet money, I'd bet that it was a particular time in your career when you didn't have a whole lot of power. Yeah. Yes and no. Um, the one I, the times I was thinking about in my head right now, I I actually had tremendous, this wasn't that long ago. This is, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Really? 
And I had tremendous power as a professor, as a supervisor, as a podcaster. And um, even with that power, it, it's such an overwhelming force, I think. It, it usually, yeah. there's a very vocal person who's kind of unhinged frequently. I mean, that, you know, you put 20 therapists together, there's going to be one unhinged one, you know. And they're the <laughs> ones that sort of speak their mind a lot more mm. and when it feels cathartic for everyone mm. as they've sort of voiced their anger and their frustration it feels like support it feels like healthy venting right but it's not no. um you know healthy venting is wow i'm really stressed out and i'm really frustrated with the fact that things aren't going well and i have an impulse to blame my clients but i know that that I'm, i don't want to do that and I, I guess I just feel powerless. You know, that, that's the mature venting. It's, it's immature to just blame and yell and, and not sort of reflect on one's own process. And, and you just think therapists would be the people who would be able to do that. Well, I can understand somebody having a moment of frustration and blaming the shit out of their client. But to leave it there is where the real mistake is. Right. And yeah, to not exactly. understand, oh, this is a reaction I'm having, managing my own feelings, yada, 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 as opposed to I'm saying things that are factually true. Right, exactly. You ask anonymous patron, you know, was it your fault that therapy failed? No. I, I mean, in general, no. But, you know, it's... It might mean that you didn't participate as fully as you could have. Yeah, it, I can't tell. I would have to be there, I suppose. Like, might you have been a lump on a log and, and been quote unquote resisting for reasons that um, you could have loosened up it a little bit, you know, maybe. Um, but as Bob and I are re- hearing your story, um, one, we would never do therapy like this for someone who was depressed. And two, if we were clients, we would, I mean, if it was me and I had, I would never go to a therapist like this one, not, not because I don't think that they're any good, it's just not what I want. <laughs> like, well, wait a minute. It might be that, yeah, that anonymous patron wasn't participating um, as fully as he could. But I don't think, I think it'd be, we want to be really careful here. What were the conditions that were interfering with this participation? Whose job is it to address those? Now, I think that, yeah, on the one hand, each of us has personal responsibility. And it does make sense to speak up and say, hey, this isn't working for me. Or I don't like the way this is going. Or this feels too rigid. Or, hey, I want to be heard but I'm coming to somebody because this is actually the trouble in my life. Whose job is it? Yeah, absolutely. If I was to take an estimate on all the factors involved that contributed to it not working for you, anonymous patron, the fact that you were resisting a little bit, which is questionable in and of itself would be like 0.1% of the effect. Um, much more likely is the fact that the therapist didn't do any of the things that are evidence-based related to relationship, i.e. talking about whether or not the tasks he was doing was actually things that you wanted to do in therapy. That simple, simple little fucking conversation of, so are these workbooks working for you? Are these homework assignments what you want to be doing, what it, if it isn't, what else would you rather be doing? Right. That is a, a simple question 
that is baseline respect to another human being Indeed. of someone that has no idea what therapy is supposed to look like or and you got to take that time not maybe every session you know maybe every every 10 minutes of every session especially of a client that you know isn't responding well or doesn't seem to be on board and so that is you know at least half of the reason why it quote unquote you know didn't work for you or not quote unquote but it didn't work for you um you also ask Am I making any unfair assumptions about therapy based on these experiences? Bob, what do you think? I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I, I was thinking, though, if it would be okay if this person looked at perhaps how scary it is to enter into a relationship, um, worry perhaps about what is the other person, in this case, a therapist, what are they going to think of me? How is that going to impact me being in um, perhaps under the potential of being scrutinized or seen? or um, exposed, like that might make it really hard. And I can't imagine, I am imagining that for this particular person, <clears throat> pardon me, for this particular person, that it's scary to enter into therapy. And um, I would encourage them to um, talk about that when they give it another shot. You talk with a therapist about that. Hey, this is really scary for me. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, in addition to that, I'll say it's not an unfair assumption that you're making about therapy, but based on your experiences, it makes sense that you would be uh, pessimistic about your future prospects in therapy. But I, I will tell you, and I hope that you're hearing it in what we're saying, is there's a whole vast world out there outside of the foxhole of CBT and ACT, and you can explore that. You can find other therapists, you know, find a, th ask the next therapist that you employ, which I pray that you do. And, it, and will, it, given your, I don't know, situation and the way you're asking these questions, I I'm assuming you will ask them. So do you assign homework or how do you feel about CBT and ACT and homework? Now, if you get someone to be like, Oh, well, that's all I do. Well, maybe that's not the best option for you. Um, if you hear someone say, oh, no, I don't do that kind of work. If someone asked me that, if they're like, you know, what do you think about CBT, ACT, and homework? I'd be like, well, one, I don't assign homework. That's just not my style. Um, and two, although I incorporate, uh, you know, CBT and ACT into my practice, I'm much more integrative and I, I use a lot of different models at, at once. Another question you could ask them is, how do you feel about humanistic therapy or interpersonal therapy or um, relationship oriented therapy or exploratory therapy or supportive therapy, these kinds of words. Now it sucks that as a consumer, you have to learn all these like weird tag words, these technical lingo words. It also sucks that your the people you call might not even understand the questions you're asking them or might not interpret the, the you know, the questions in the same way. It'd be like trying to find a foot doctor and there's all these different definitions of what a foot means, you know? It, are you a foot doctor? Yes, you go in and they're like, oh, well, I call the heart a foot. Fuck, you know, I'm in the wrong goddamn office. And I get that, that's frustrating. But I would, I would explore that, or at the very least, humanistic. You're, you're, you're not going to go wrong in all likelihood in terms of model choice if you try to find a humanistic or an interpersonal therapist. Those people are 
uh, worth a try given what you're talking about here and will probably not only not assign homework, but will be the exact opposite of that kind of therapist. It'll be interested in what is the experience of this moment now. Right. Yeah. You also say, am I wrong to want therapy to be something that it's not? No, you want therapy to be effective and that's normal. You thought going to therapy meant talking about your feelings. You were right. This person has a model that is fine and can be effective for some people, but it should have been adequately explained to you before you even went into that office. Look, I'm a CBT therapist. Uh, We're going to follow this manualized thing. Um, I, if you talk about the past, I'm not going to want to hear that. You might want to try out a, another style of therapy along with mine to see which one fits with you. That's what you should have been provided. You were not provided that, um, in, I'm guessing. And how could you have known, I guess, is the point. Um, the other thing is that getting back to, you know, is it your fault? There's this, in your question, I think what happens is that people, you know, they read on the internet or they hear from the therapist, this model works, it's evidence-based. And then when it doesn't work, you're like, well, what's wrong with me? Because there's this implication that it works for everyone. And if, and I'm just doing the model that works. And if it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm effective. I'm, I'm the therapist. Science has proven I'm right. I'm effective. So if it doesn't work, it must be your fault. And again, when we look at the research, Tons of people, even in the best of studies that show effectiveness for CBT, show plenty of people where it only works kind of or doesn't work at all or even makes things worse. So, so that's one thing that um, I think we need to get out there. Uh, and you kind of went into that a little you know, or well, Bob, in terms of, you know, the artery thing, which I like that analogy, which I, I'm, I'm going to steal if, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. Um, all right. Uh, let's take a break. Go ahead. I just said good luck. Yeah. And let us know how you're doing. Honest major. So we're on video conference and Bob, you haven't said anything about the Brett in my hair. I have a, I have a, a little Brett. Oh, you can't see it. You got a little alfalfa in the back, but I didn't notice the Brett. It's, uh, hidden. Yeah. Your camera's on slightly off. Yeah. So because of the quarantine, I can't get my hair cut and my hair was already getting a little long. So that was pretty bad. And then I decided to cut my own hair, which was pretty disastrous. <laughs> and so uh, it, cause before cutting it, it was getting kind of wild on this side of my head. And so I decided to cut down the wildness, but all that did was kind of make the wildness more sticky outy into my eyes. If that makes any sense. Sure. And so I, I've started using one of my wife's barrettes to hold my hair up because it, it's, it's one thing to have long hair in the back. It's like, okay, whatever, you know, but to have hair that goes into your eyes all the time, it's just, yeah, uh, yeah, right. it's bothersome. You're the first person I met who cut his hair. That's like, I think it's maybe the second or third night of graduate school that you, you had disclosed that you, you cut your own hair. I was like, I never met anybody that cut their own hair before. Well, my haircut at the time was, a was buzz, man. Yeah, it was just a buzz cut. So that's not hard to achieve. No. But yeah, I used to I used to cut my hair up in pretty elaborate uh, ways. It was it never went particularly well. But you know, when you're a starving student, like ten bucks for a haircut was you know that was a hardship. So 
it's just amazing how poor we were back then. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> how we just could not afford the simple kinds of things uh, in life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyway, uh, anonymous patron, he writes, I am a 26 year old male who has been suffering from major depression for about nine years. Mm-hmm. When it hit me, uh, like a brick wall at the age of 17, my life completely changed. Lost relationships, friendships slowly slipped away, et cetera, et cetera. I grew up an only child to a teen single mother and never had a relationship with my father. I was sexually abused at the age of six. Depression runs deep on both sides of my family and addiction exists on my father's side. I have a neuropsych tested uh, IQ of 137. Wait, wait, but, that buzzed out. Can you say it again or what? Well, I don't really understand. The, the, he tested 137 IQ, oh. but never had discipline as a student and have always only studied my own interests. I love psychology, philosophy, and the universe. My mind is very healthy, and I have a deep inner desires to achieve greatness. However, I feel as if I'm stuck in a swirl of deep, opaque emotions that I've never been able to clearly identify or sort through to be able to effectively integrate into my identity effectively. I have a career, I have career goals and lots of experience in sales and marketing, but I'm missing the other more sentimental areas of life, such as love. I have severe avoidant attachment and meaningful relationships that I desire. Please, any words of wisdom or advice you could offer would be greatly appreciated. Uh, what do you think, Bob? What do you, what do you think he wants? Well, it, it sounds you know, given his avoiding attachment, he might have a harder time being explicit about what he yeah, wants. Right. Uh, so maybe that's one thing we can so see. We, but we I, have I, a little bit of a risk here of responding to, um, we might not actually address what it turns out he actually really wants. Right. So look, if, I, if, if he wants to write again, if we miss the mark, maybe we should invite him to go ahead and do so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, reading between the lines, I think what he wants is some thoughts on how to not be depressed, how to have a direction in life, how to have more attachments in his life. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, uh, that's that's what it sounds like to me. Um, any thoughts on that, Bob? Yeah, well, I'm winging it, but I think my first hit is uh, hearing his story made me feel really sad that there's a lot of pain in it. Um, it looked like there were a lot of factors um, that um, um, made him vulnerable to having this kind of experience in life where he feels, you know, um, detached or alone or frustrated. Um, so uh, on the one hand, and I don't mean to say that I think it's inev- that he's doomed. It does make sense that he's having a struggle given all the things that he described um, uh, from his, you know, family and his legacy and so forth. Um, so I feel sad is the main thing I want to say. And I wonder if he feels sad. I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's safe to feel sad. I wrote a note here. He seems to have ambivalence about wanting to engage, um, and also not wanting to engage, um, maybe with people, but I was thinking about with, you know, his career, um, ambitions and aspirations. Part of him feels excited and like he has a lot of potential, which sounds like he really does. Um, and another part of me finds he can't get any traction. And I'm curious about that part that, um, 
um, leads him to, if it's okay to say it this way, underachieving or getting stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I'm sad too. I, I, reading between the lines, it sounds like a lot of, of uh, suffering. Yeah. So obviously get a therapist, anonymous patron uh, to work this out. A good one that you agree on the alliance and the tasks and you have a good attachment to, you know, you deserve that. Um, And there's nothing that we can say here that would uh, be considered treatment, but in terms of just some reactions, it's quite possible that, um, and, you know, given your conceptualization of yourself as avoidant attachment style and your traumas growing up and your neglect, the neglect you went through growing up, that you are, uh, you have a hard time being vulnerable to other people. You have a harder time, um, depending on other people or trusting other people and you might have a hard time building over time the kind of love and back and forth of dependency you know i i I have a i have a few toes in avoidant attachment myself and i i know exactly what that is like where the the cruising speed of my life is to be totally fine on my own to act like i'm totally fine on my own and to assume that I'm totally fine on my own. I'm not fine on my, I'm, I'm far from fine on my own. <laughs> no one, no one is fine. Everyone is suffering, uh, including me. And this notion of just like, well, you know, again, it's, it, it, it's rare that the thought enters, enters my head of like, I'm not going to depend on other people or I'm not going to reach out to other people. It's just like minute to minute life where I'm like, okay, on to the next task. Okay, podcast thing this. Okay, client thing that. Okay, do the laundry. It never, even though inside of me, there, in the same way that inside of me, this notion comes up of like, oh, I better, I better prepare for the next podcast. You know, that kind of emerges from inside of me. And I'm like, oh, okay, put, put that on the list or I'll, I'll set out to do that today. There's a notion that kind of pops in. Because, you know, I don't have to prepare for any podcast, really. There's, I'm my own boss blah, blah, blah. And so it has to come from within. There has to be some kind of connection with like, okay, given my life, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And this is what I need to do. That kind of thing. There's some kind of need there. Well, there's also this other part of me, which is this part that's dependent. That is, that wants to be vulnerable, that wants to just be held and understood and um, have someone take care of me to lay it out on the line and have someone say to me, I hear you. That is a normal part of everyone. And when that emerge, that doesn't even cross the threshold of consciousness for me. (laughs) I have to consciously pay attention and, and sort of drag things across that threshold into consciousness of, I need to be vulnerable. I need someone to take care of me. I need to express that vulnerability. I need to cry on someone's shoulder. And that's not comfortable for me. And by doing that over my lifetime, I have deepened all of my relationships. I've, I've become more emotionally stable. I've become more happy, but it's work. And if I just sit back and cruise through life, I don't do that shit. I got to every day, I got to, okay, let's, let's look behind that veil. What, what's going on inside of me right now? Okay, I got to drag that out. Okay, you got to be vulnerable. Oh, shit. 
this could go bad. You know, I have this fear that if I'm a, you know vulnerable with someone, that uh, they're just going to drop the ball or they're, I don't know, just something bad is going to happen. Do I care about you? What do you mean? Do I care about you? Yeah, you do. Do I love you? You do. Are you my friend? Yes, you are. <laughs> Why are you asking me these questions, Bob? Just inviting you into your vulnerability. Oh. It's a little bit Krieg, sorry. Well, to be specific to you and me, I could do more to be vulnerable with you, hmm. but I have been vulnerable with you. I'm being oh, vulnerable with you, with you right now. You're one of and, my favorite people. Oh, thanks, Bob. I hope that all of us, Bob, me, you, anonymous patron, the other anonymous patron, can see the glory in that, you know? All of us are males, by the way. Uh, we've, we all identify as, as men um, that so far that are depressed. Um, I don't suffer from depression particularly, but, uh, but from emotional suffering as, and this cruising speed of independence. I'll tell you, anonymous patron, that like when I'm vulnerable to Bob, for example, and he holds me and he understands and he takes care of me, and I know that he is really paying attention and I know that he remembers things and I know that he cares and it's, it's not complicated. You know, it's not like, Oh God, Bob's gonna judge me or I don't know. If anything, I feel like uh, we're in a better zone <laughs> when we're in those kinds of spaces. I'll tell you anonymous patient that when I, when I have that feeling like I do right now, cause I can see Bob, you know, he's um, tearing up a little bit and I feel in the here and now, I feel relaxed, I feel real, I feel like a human, I feel worth it, I feel uncomplicated about the past or the future. I'm, I'm right here, right now, you know, being vulnerable, Bob's caring about me, and what a, what a nice feeling, you know, what, what a human, real feeling. What a great sentence. I feel uncomplicated about the past and the future. That's fucking brilliant. And it's true. And so if you're in a constant state of complication of past and future and disconnected to your vulnerability and uh, you don't have these kinds of relationships, then yeah, that's, that's fucking depressing, my friend. This poor guy, it's almost like we're saying to him, yeah, I get it. You're floating in the middle of a, a vast ocean. There's no horizon in sight. You've never seen a boat, but you have to build one in the middle of a fucking hurricane. He doesn't have an internal model for what's possible, what actual connection or care or love or support could really look like. And I guess on the one hand, I'm not surprised he's not getting much traction in being self-sufficient and getting himself down the road in the ways that he has the potential and the desire to do because he can't do it alone. Nobody can. And we're talking to him. We're saying, Hey buddy, there's an Island out there. You can find it. You can get there. You can get there and land and be at ease and be comforted. And there's people there that will welcome you and they'll be interested in you. And it's all true on the one hand. And on the other hand, maybe it's hard to actually understand what the fuck we're talking about because there's no internal reference for it. Cognitive understanding, sure. We're not saying anything that's all that complicated, but real in my heart getting the possibility of that, it's so easy for that to not make any fucking sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's two things to this as to why I often uh, get into this kind of conversation. One is, is to point people toward what I believe is likely to help them because without any kind of direction, especially when you're misdirected by things online, then it's hard to know even what you're shooting for. And it's hard to know like when you're on even potentially the right path. So hopefully, you know, there's some recognition of like, okay, that's where I want to be. And then I'm going to look for things that look like I'm, I'm heading in that direction. Uh, The other thing I'll say is, is that there's, there's both an analogy of an oasis out there, but it's also just like, I just had a moment with Bob right now. And so is that an oasis or did I just, or did I just transport myself with like the Star Trek transporter directly to the oasis? Did I have to journey there? Not really. You know what I mean? Like I, I created that right now. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to build up to, I just, I just got vulnerable. I went to that space in my heart. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing I'll say is that Bob and I have cultivated a relationship over 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I know him and he knows me and, mm-hmm. um, and we know how to attune to each other. We're also both therapists, which helps, I suppose. Um, but, you know, uh, anyway, so the point is, is cultivation is what I always say. A lot of people will say, but I'm alone right now. Like, I, I've tried. And I, so I say, you know, you got to go on a campaign. There's no way around it. Like, if you can suddenly have a bunch of secure relationships, then great. But that's not likely to happen. You, yeah. it's, it's a campaign that you go on and it might take 20 years before you, you, you find three people that you can really depend on. And I know that it's depresses that people. Uh, people are just like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, how do I cope right now? And yeah, do what you can to cope, you know, for sure. And emotionally, emotional regulation, all those kinds of things for sure. But it, it takes, it often takes time. Um, I'll just say for me, the, this process of me trying to be more vulnerable, I would say if I was to rate myself, I'm probably like 30% there, you know, and it's been 25 years of, of a journey for me. Hmm. I still have 70% left to go. And I'll probably never get past 55%. So Hmm. there's not a single person who has ever worked on themselves their entire life and at the age of X say, Hey, I'm done. You know, I've arrived. I have no weird personality traits. I I have no reactivity. I have no tendencies that interfere with my happiness. Uh, There's not a single person on the planet that's like that. And we, as Americans in particular, we, we sort of had this notion of just like, you know, you cry, you reach this place where everything's fine and you you won't be suffering anymore for any, from any kind of psychological condition or something. Having said that, there's a ton of optimism and a ton of things that one can do. You know, there's something self-validating in the fact that this fellow wrote in. It's like somewhere inside there's a recognition of the possibility of something more satisfying and fulfilling. It's like somewhere inside he knows that. And he's right. actually speaking probably to and for a lot of people out there listening who have similar kinds of longings. Yeah. Well, what's the final word, Bob? Hang in there, guy. Keep going. You're worth it. 
And everyone else out there, keep going as well. And you are worth it as well. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. 